Good morning, um, as they set me up here. You guys can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 4, and we're going to continue our series through Romans. I believe it's page uh, 941 in your pew Bible. If I'm honest, um, I feel like I have nothing else to say after Mamie's testimony. Um, I feel like we should just continue to worship and uh, celebrate that. Um, but, uh, but here I am, and I want to start off with uh, a story this morning. So Romans chapter 4, we'll get there in just a second, but I want to share a story. And high schoolers, I shared this at the cabin about a month ago, so sorry for the repeat, um, but I th- for this morning. So it was 2011, um, 10 years ago, and it was uh, my spring semester at Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington. I was a freshman. Uh, Just less than three years prior to this, I began to follow Jesus at a retreat in Florida. Um, I was confronted with my sin and the sufficiency of Christ in a new way. Um, I prayed a prayer of forgiveness and started a brand new journey. Fast forward two and a half years. Uh, Here I was living in Munsell Hall in Bloomington, playing basketball and having a great freshman year. At this time in my life, most of my friends were not following Jesus, and uh, we, let's just have a good time. Um, we would go to parties on the weekends and wanting to be in the middle of all the action. Um, while I didn't necessarily partake in the partying, um, I was there amongst the crowd, living it up and enjoying myself. I lived on the seventh floor of my dorm building, and I knew most of the people on my floor. My room, over time, became the hangout room. We would stay up way too uh, late every single night, uh, listening to music, watching sports, and just hanging out. And there was a guy on my floor um, whose name was Danny. We weren't super close, but uh, he would pop into my room from time to time. Uh, When I saw him on the quad or if we had class together, we would say hello. And In addition to being a part of the basketball team, I started to get involved in a campus ministry called DRL, uh, which stood for Death, Resurrection, Life. This was primarily thanks to my older brother who was on the leadership team at the time. I would go to the large group meeting every single Thursday night, um, and then just about an hour or two later find myself at a party. Near the end of my second semester, after knowing Danny, who lived on my floor for almost a whole school year, Danny shows up at DRL one Thursday night. He sees me there, we shake hands, we say hello, and then we go and find our seats. Hours later, back at the dorm, Munsell Hall, there was a knock on our door. Um, Immediately, all of uh, myself, along with all my friends, thought that it was our RA again, coming back to tell us to be quiet for the fourth or fifth time. Um, But instead, we open the door and we we see Danny. We ask him how his night is going, and he starts to share about going to DRL for the first time. And he looks at me, I was sitting on my bed, I had the top bunk. Uh, sitting on my bed, and he says, Brady, it was, it was great to see you at DRL. And what he said next um, will be something that I hope when I enter the new heavens and new earth, I don't have this memory anymore. He said, Brady, it was great to see you at DRL. I had no idea you were a Christian. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 1. 
we read, What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, or excuse me, not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, is the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then Paul then quotes here from Psalm 32. He writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, get this, okay, this is my point this morning, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith, of the circumcised, um, of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. By your spirit, just be present among us. Teach us, humble us. Whatever you have for us this morning, God, I pray that we would be a people who are ready to hear with eyes and ears and hearts open. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, What I want you to walk away with today is this, pretty simple as always. We are justified by faith for obedience. Uh, You can take some notes in your bulletin if you want to. It's the last page. We are justified by faith for obedience. Two main points, okay? First, we are justified by faith for what? For obedience, okay? So let's start. Looking at Romans chapter 4, 1 through 12, Paul, like he often does, he asks himself questions. And these are questions that he's either getting and he's hearing from other people or just as he's writing, he's imagining, okay, how are they going to be responding to this? Um, So then he answers his very own questions right after. And the basic point is this. When was Abraham justified? Was it before or after circumcision? Paul is clear. It was after, okay? It was Abraham's belief. It was Abraham's faith that justified him. Nothing else. Um, We can't understand this passage in Romans 4 unless we understand Abraham understand this passage unless we understand Abraham's story, and unfortunately, we can't understand uh, this passage unless we understand circumcision, okay? Um, So yes, we're going to go there this morning. I apologize in advance, but in order to do this, we need to go back to the beginning, all right? So turn with me to Genesis 15. You can keep your thumb if you want to in, in Romans 4, we'll end there, but 
Genesis 15, real quick to catch you up to speed. Remember, Abram is called in Genesis 12 by the Lord, by God, and he's given a promise to receive land, to become a great nation, and for his name to become great. All right, forward a few chapters and look at Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. The author writes, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 3, And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. I'm outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Verse six, and he, meaning Abram, believed the Lord and he, meaning the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram, promised many descendants, is still childless and he's getting very, very impatient as he grows old. God tells him to go outside, go look up, number the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you'll have. Okay, the rest of chapter 15 is a covenantal ceremony between God and Abram. All right, chapter 16, look at verse 1. 16 verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So I got an idea. She says, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Side note, does this sound familiar? If we're good Bible readers, there should be a red flag going off right now that should make us think of another husband and wife earlier in Genesis who did something very similar. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Get this, Sarai took and gave to her husband. Eve took of the fruit in Genesis chapter 3 and gave it to her husband. If you were at church camp, um, I briefly talked about this theme that we see all throughout Scripture. This is Sarai and Abraham redefining good and evil. This is them, like Adam and Eve, choosing to eat from the tree of knowing good and evil. Essentially saying, you know what? We've been promised descendants, and here we are, childless. You know what would be good? Let's take our slave and let's make her bear children for us. As you can imagine, this doesn't go well for anyone. The rest of chapter 16, Sarai becomes bitter with Hagar, and that leads Hagar to run away with her son Ishmael. And Abram has a very painful surgery awaiting him. Chapter 17, look at verse 1. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, nations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Okay, so God has made a covenant with Abraham, and the sign of this covenant is circumcision. Um, I have a question for you. Have you ever asked yourself why circumcision? Um, Maybe I'm the only weird one in here, uh, but, I, but I just think, why? Why circumcision? Um, I think I answer this morning. First, circumcision was not unique to Israel, okay? It's believed that the Egyptians were the first group to actually start practicing circumcision, so Abraham would have been possibly aware of this practice. It wouldn't have completely come out of left field. But why? Why circumcision? Why not a cool tattoo, right? Or why not a unique piercing somewhere? Why not a certain hairstyle or a unique beard or maybe a certain type of clothing that no one else was rocking back in the day? Why circumcision? Why is that the sign of the covenant? Do you remember what Abraham did just one chapter before in, verse, or in chapter 16? What part of his body did he use to attempt to take control of his childless situation? It's as if God is saying, quote, the very part of your body you use to try and secure your own future, I will mark. And this mark will be a reminder of the judgment of what you did to Hagar. And more importantly, it will also be a hope of what I will do with in the future. And that future hope is a son, and his name will be Isaac. We are justified by faith for obedience. And you may be sitting here right now, well, what does circumcision what does everything that we just read about in Genesis have to do with that phrase? 
circumcision didn't save Abraham. And many people would equate uh, baptism as the modern day circumcision. And what I mean by that is just like the act of, a, of circumcision, which male does not save that individual, neither does any one of us getting baptized. Right? We've, we've heard this. And there's a lot of truth into this. However, I think there is a more applicable equivalent to circumcision in our circles of Christianity. And it's not a perfect equivalent, but I think it's better. Do you remember my story at the beginning? I'd been a Christian for almost three years. A guy on my floor had known me for almost an entire school year. And he had no idea I was a Christian. I think a better equivalent decision is praying the sinner's prayer that leads to zero life change. Let me be clear. This isn't praying a prayer of forgiveness that actually leads to repentance and leads to life change, but one that is just lip service. Asking for forgiveness and asking to be saved from our sins are merely just words if they're not true within our own hearts and it doesn't lead to life change. And apparently and unfortunately my freshman year there was no evidence. There was no fruit. So what am I saying? Am I saying that we have to earn our way to be with Jesus? Do we have to earn our way for salvation? No. Turn back to Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 11, starting in the middle. Paul writes, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but what? But who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul wants us to walk in the foot's faith. James writes that faith without works is dead. We are justified by faith for obedience. As I was preparing this week and thinking about all of you and thinking about our congregation, my my heart was heavy. Thinking about um, the Zimmerman and Stuber family. Thinking about the Rumbled family, who I believe is all together right now. Thinking about how many more people are going through tough times that I'm completely unaware of. To everyone who is grieved or finds themselves in a difficult situation, look at verses 7 and 8. Paul quotes from David from Psalm 32 and he writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You know who these verses are true of? Donna and Gary. In a way never experienced by them before, They are free. Family and friends, know that you are not alone. Because God has promised to never leave you 
And just like he said to Hagar in chapter 16 of Genesis when she ran away, he sees Hagar and he sees you in your suffering. And church, let's be present for these families. It's been really easy to do that the past couple weeks. But in a few weeks, in a few months, when we all go back to our normal lives, it becomes easy to forget, but let's not let that be the case. Remember these families. Love them. Come along. Serve them. And pray for them. And switching gears slightly, Mamie, praise God for your baptism. Amen. Praise God for his restoring work in your life. Praise God that you took the step of obedience and faith and said yes to baptism. And now, Mamie, walk in the footsteps of faith. This isn't the end of your journey. It's only just the beginning. And as you walk, you'll be walking right alongside of Jesus. Don't be like me to a, a one moment in time, praying a prayer, or maybe for you getting baptized and thinking that your journey is done. It's not about a moment or a destination. It's about a lifestyle and a journey. Ultimately, it's not about where we are going. It's who we are with. And that person is Jesus. Trust him in the good days and the bad days. He is capable and he's worth it. And for all of us, I want to say two things to close. And you'll find yourself in one of these two camps. First, are verses 7 and 8 true of you? Are your lawless deeds forgiven? Is your sin not counted against you? If you're here this morning and you don't know the honest answer to that question, maybe today is the day that you begin a new journey that we call following Jesus because Jesus made a way for us to follow him. It's a new way of life. It goes against the American culture because it's not a life that is primarily concerned with striving, with success, with efficiency, with or appearance. But it's a life marked by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, by goodness, by faithfulness, by gentleness and self-control. And secondly, if you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus, very, very simple question. Are you walking in the footsteps of faith? If not preached carefully, I think reading and teaching and preaching from only Romans 1 through 5 can lead us to apathy and almost a sense of it to do whatever we want. Right? There is nothing that we can can do to be saved, so there must not be anything to do after we're saved either, right? No, Paul calls us to walk in the footsteps of faith. Don't be like freshman year Brady who subconsciously was holding on to the modern day circumcision, which is praying the sinner's prayer, and, and somewhere in my brain just thinking that's enough. That's all I needed to do. 
The reality is Jesus didn't come to get you into heaven. He came to get heaven into you by his Holy Spirit. And as far as I know, eternal life is only defined one place in Scripture. And you know who it's? Jesus. And it's hours before he's arrested and later killed in John 17. And it's in a prayer. And he says to the Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Church, eternal life is offered to us in this very moment because eternal life is an abiding relationship with the Trinity. We are justified by faith for obedience. And that obedience that Paul calls us to and ultimately God calls us to is to walk in the footsteps of faith. In the quietness of your heart and your mind, I just want you to ask God two simple questions. Just ask God, Father, what do you have for me as I leave this place? Secondly, ask him what you should go do about it, or maybe who you should become. Father, I thank you for the finished work of the cross, and possibly more importantly, because without it, I wouldn't be standing up right here, the finished work of the empty tomb that you are a God who makes promises and keeps them, that not even death could hold you down. And so I pray as we leave here, um, if there is anybody among us, Lord, who does not know you, who has not been forgiven, I pray that you, that you would stir us to repentance, that you would stir us to a conversation with a friend or a family member that would not only be praying a prayer, but praying a prayer that leads to life change, that leads to repentance and a new way of living. And for those of us who have been followers of you for for maybe decades now, light a new fire in our spirit. Don't allow us to become apathetic or complacent. Don't allow us to accept the status quo. But let us be a people who are the light of the world and who are the salt of the earth so that when the world sees us, they see our Father in heaven, and that is you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us, uh, and praise God once again for the testimony and baptism of Mamie, and all of you are enjoyed, in, uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, invited, thank you. Invited uh, for lunch in the APR, thank you. Mm-hmm.